Hey, movie lovers, welcome back for another Anatomy of Movie here at Popcorn Talk. Today, we venture into horror. That's right. We're going to be talking about Halloween. No, not Halloween. Halloween. Come on. Halloween. You know what I'm talking about. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. I had some humor with the intro, but we are, of course, talking about the 2018 Halloween. I have Dimitri Panos here. Hey, movie fans, and hey, Phil. Hello. Horror fans, specifically. Horror and Halloween fan here. Absolutely. I'm Phil Svitek. Missing in action is Marissa Serafini, but then again, she doesn't love horror anyway, so, (laughs) Um, you know, she's decided to sit this one out. For those of you joining us for the very first time, let me introduce you to the show. We are going to be spoiler-filled. We assume that you've seen the movie. So in this instance, if you haven't, go see the movie, then come back to us. And kind of by extension, we're going to be talking about the Halloween universe. So, you know, we have to talk about the original because it ties into this one. We're, of course, talking about this one. But then even though this one negates the middle chunks, we'll still kind of reference those. So just be forewarned. Um, Some of you guys don't care about spoilers. Up to you. If you want to follow along, uh, we have our rundown in the description. It's a little PDF that we provided for you for little nuggets that we don't quite get to on the show. And we're not just a review show. We're going to talk spoilers and, and, and storyline, of course, but we're going to talk about the production, and especially the history with a movie like this. So sure. lots and lots to discuss there. But without further ado, going to the Halloween fan, perhaps the number one Halloween fan, certainly the number one Halloween fan I know... <laughs> Dimitri, what did you think of the movie? What a moniker. Uh, what did I think of the movie? Well, as you know, it was one of my, this year, since there is no Star Trek or Star Wars movie, this was my Star Wars for, for, for 2018. Very much looking forward to this movie and seeing how they would handle this, the, 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 this story by retconning everything else with the exception of the original. And I believe for the most part, they really did it right. There was fan service, but I think there's uh, plenty for audience service in the horror genre. I think it crosses, I think it just crosses, it goes all across the boards for this one. I think people will really like it. I think I personally really enjoyed it. It was great to have Halloween back in this sense. Um, it captured a lot of the style uh, from the original, uh, yet it updated. Uh, this movie is not the pot boiler that the 1978 version was. Uh, it is a little more brutal, but it but it really crosses that line. Never goes over the line, I think, in the brutality, but it really amps up the suspense um, and its intensity. So um, I did have a character issue. There is a character in the movie that uh, uh, ends up there's a certain plot point that it, it, it angered me but not so much because I felt the rest of the movie was so strong I still give this a very high thumbs up as being a fan as being a fan of the genre and being of course a fan of John Carpenter's Halloween we will talk about that I sort of kind of liken it to our discussion last week of A Star Is Born Interesting comparison. Well, here's why. Because in A Star is Born, there was so much to like about the movie. Whatever parts, and I believe that there were some parts of it that we discussed that we didn't like so Mm -hmm. much, right? But the strength of the movie in its other parts, uh, the sum of its parts really made up its whole. And it was 
Ultimately, I have to give that movie a thumbs up and recommend. Same thing with Halloween. As much as this one character development uh, and plot point happened, and it, it angered me, even after the third time of watching the movie, I still think the basis that the, that the strength of the suspense and the horror in Michael Myers and Jamie Lee Curtis still carry it through, and it's a winner for me. Okay. Well... I was really looking forward to this, and for the most part, it was enjoyable. There's a couple things that made me scratch my head. I think the movie's at its greatest when it just does things and it doesn't have to explain them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple of times that it tries to explain a couple of things or explore certain things, trying to go a little bit deeper, and it just abandons them. That That's what disappointed me. Um, case in point, I think the new Doctor... And when he that to me, uh, either go with it or or not. So we'll t- we'll talk about a little bit of that more. Um, he was my biggest issue. I yeah. was gonna be he, that character. The longer he was on screen and what his character arc and plot point happened, he was my. I really disliked that character. Yeah, I didn't know what they were quite thinking there, but yeah, and we can talk about it a little more. Absolutely, and. One of the things for me, uh, you know, I'm not entirely, obviously it's a very big decision to have Lori essentially spend the rest of her life preparing for what may or may never come. Now, obviously it comes because otherwise you would have no movie, <laughs> but nonetheless, I don't know. It just, I, I understand she would be traumatized and she could be v- deeply traumatized, but I don't know if this is like, this is what I wanted for Lori to spend her life on. Um Obviously, it's sad, but I, I think Jamie Lee Curtis played it well, and, and she made it believable, so I, I bought into it. Um, before we get into the story, though, I want to kind of contextualize it, uh, certainly from the perspective of how Blumhouse at least got the rights, because, uh, you know, last we saw, Rob Zombie was doing the movies, and, right. and uh, you know, Blumhouse and, and, and whatnot didn't have the rights to it, but no. then, uh, so give a, give a little bit of the history well, of how was, the transition. There was a lot of line of, uh, you know, Blumhouse said for an acquisition or to get to be involved, there was a lot going on between Trankis International, Malik Akkad, the Akkad family who owns the rights. Um, in fact, we'll talk about one of the one of the references, Universal. This is the second time that Universal has released a Halloween picture, uh, the first one being Halloween 2, and then after that, it was Miramax Dimension. Getting the rights, and that's why, in fact, Miramax is in the credits. It's the first time I've seen a Miramax credit in a long time in a movie theater. And so Miramax Dimension had owned the rights. Jason Blum, uh, the Akkad family, or Malik Akkad now, it was his dad, Mustafa, who's the original, one of the original producers, who also owns the rights. And it was, Miramax is an entity, but they don't distribute movies. They don't necessarily, I think this might have been the first moniker I've seen since their rebirth, let's call it. So it was basically getting the the, the contract, going through the Akkad family. Erwin Yablons uh, is still involved because he was one of the originators of the concept. And then getting it from Dimension, which no longer exists. Basically, the rights are in limbo. Well, they like, were trying and, and, to make a yeah. movie, and, and they just never did, yeah. and so then the rights essentially fell through. Yeah, and, and the script for that, the movie they were going with, uh, yeah, which never became, and yeah, it's as such happens in Hollywood, 
things just just look at Spider Man, right? They just fall by the wayside. <laughs> After the video that we just saw, uh, that's actually very funny, Phil. Um, but yeah, no, they fell by the wayside, so nothing was being done with the property, mm-hmm. and Blumhouse felt that it was time. Uh, obviously, Malika Cod would want this to happen again, and then just getting everybody on board. And the story about getting everybody on board really, I, I think, is a great behind-the-scenes story because they first off, they wanted to get John Carpenter. And they also believed you can't get this done without Jamie Lee Curtis. And then it's who do you pick to direct this and to write it? And that came across Danny McGraw, Danny McBride, Jeff Rayleigh, David Gordon Green, who are as far away from the horror genre that you could think of. At least on paper, certainly on paper. At least on paper, they like it's just out of what audiences and even Hollywood, because Hollywood loves to pigeonhole people, but this is who they picked to write the story. And then go Well, they were sort of self like they they were huge fans of the original. It's not like all of a sudden this fell into the lap. Like they, they in essence, petitioned themselves. Like, no, we want to do this. We can do this. And Blum and Jason Blum, um, David Gordon Green has this great story. Uh, he said he mentioned this at the Halloween convention, which took place last weekend in Pasadena, where, yeah, he got a text from Jason Blum, basically in the subject heading. All it read was Halloween question mark, and he's like, oh my god, he's coming to me to. To a Halloween movie, he said it was so surreal that his legs, his legs almost went out from under him. And then it was coming up with stories and what they were going to do. And as they were trying to interweave what had happened in the past and include, and include what has happened before recently, uh, that meaning that uh, the big reveal in Halloween Two that Michael Myers is Laurie Strode's brother. And they kept on coming to dead ends uh, with all their plot threads. And finally, they came up with an idea. What if we just jettison it all and use the original? And we're going to get rid of everything so we don't have to be beholden. And the idea was what made the original Halloween, what has helped make it so successful is its simplicity. And we're going to start off with simplicity. We don't need all those other threads. And there they went. And they did their pitch. Blum loved it. They took it to Jamie Lee Curtis, who also really loved it. And uh, they say their biggest thrill was talking to John Carpenter. And he ended up, his biggest caveat was, and this is really funny, he was on board and he says, okay, I'll be in under one condition. I want to do the music. And they're like, okay. (laughs) So... Yeah, it was just where all the stars aligned to get the rights, to get people on board with the story. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is an executive producer, along with John Carpenter. Have him involved. Well, that's what I like. I I liked his switch because essentially the quote from him goes, you know, I've been sitting on the sidelines throwing rocks at sort of the franchise. And granted, I haven't even seen all of them. So I just kind of wanted to put my money where my mouth was. Yeah. I, I respect that, and you know, especially someone like you're there for the original and whatever you weren't involved in the others, and rather than be bitter about anything, just just get back into it. Yeah, and and 
just to take it, let's go back to like 1978, 1977-78. He was contractually obligated to be involved with at least, depending on the, the success of Halloween. It was huge. Contractually, he was involved to come back. He and Deborah Hill were involved in one way, shape, or form to come back for a Halloween 2. It took a few years for that sequel to get off the ground. He didn't want really any part of a sequel. He felt that he had told the story, Michael Myers' story. He didn't necessarily want to go back, but he knew he was involved. He actually did it, too, in part so he can do go on do The Fog, do a couple of other movies. Um, and Carpenter himself will admit that he came up with the idea. You know, he was not happy. He was drinking a lot. And he came up with the idea of Michael Myers being Laurie Strode's sister in a, in a drunken writing frenzy. And but once he was done with Halloween, too, he said, that's it. I'm not coming back. And even uh, though asked multiple times, no, no, no. Even with Rob Zombie, basically, his thing was he would get some money from it because it's his uh, in in, in a sense. And he was just like, hey, God bless you, man. Go on. Go do what you want to do. But nobody ever consulted him. And in this movie, they actually did look towards one of the masters of horror who who built this this franchise. They actually asked for his input, and they took him very very seriously. And he did the soundtrack along with his son. Yeah. Well, I think what, what's what's interesting, like sometimes you know franchises, movies like Marvel and so forth, Fast and the Furious, but he really built this iconic character. And I think that, to me, is a step above just the franchise. That's why people want to continue these movies, because he, there's just such a mythos to him. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was, I, was, um, I, was, I was pontificating, probably boring Anthony with a little bit of film history. Anthony about, from Horror Movie uh, News right, here at the network. Is that Halloween is important in, in movie history and in horror history for... It was definitely in 1978, the first of its kind. Um, the reason why slasher, the genre exists, is because of Halloween, even though Halloween is not a, by all counts, it's not a bloody movie. Um, and But its popularity, and at the time it cost about 300000 to make, uh, it made well over hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, at the time, too, it was the highest-grossing independent movie of all time. Nobody saw it coming. And on top of that, it got good reviews. Um, the likes of Siskel and Ebert. And I remember their review of the movie, and I was surprised because they usually didn't like a lot of types of horror, but they were open-minded enough. They gave it a really good review, did really huge. But it was from Halloween, the producers and writers of Friday the 13th specifically said, we're just ripping off Halloween. And then they just made their their monster bloodier. It's a lot gorier. Uh, they jettisoned story and character, and, and they replaced it with, with slasher things. Jamie Lee Curtis it launched her career. She became, let's say, the original Scream Queen. She was in other movies like The Fog with John Carpenter. She also did Terror Train. Uh, and then Halloween too. She had to come. And back unlike for. most, like yeah, I mean, she the fact that she came back throughout the years to the franchise and wanted to be a part of it, 
and wasn't like oh horror because some actors get that way they get their start in horror and then they move on and right. never to be seen or heard from in a horror movie ever again yeah and you know she made a conscious decision too shortly after the fog in which she said yeah i'm really not going to do any more horror movies if i want a career an everlasting career i gotta branch out um and then going on into the future when you come to halloween h2o which was celebrating the 20th anniversary of of halloween again that was um uh, Steve Miner directed, and, and and it gave Laurie Strode something different. Uh, again, that character is not unlike the character of this Laurie Strode uh, in 2018, which she's suffering from some PTSD of the events that happened. She's under a a, uh, a false name. Uh, she's in witness protection, in a sense, uh, and preparing for the time that her brother was going to come back. So it, uh, this Halloween follows some of the beats from H2O. Um, we'll go into it more because I have probably what I think is the most exhaustively researched uh, Easter egg references. We'll go through those later because they're great for discussion. But this also really beat for beat. A lot of it um, is what Halloween 2 was, in a sense. It references the movies a lot. But having her come back in this movie, when we talk about PTSD, you're saying about... It being 40 years and she's still not over it, right? I don't need her to be over it, but uh, but the way in which she goes about it, right. she's basically <clears throat> planning, might as well be going to war with a small country. Right. Well, you know, I, I liken her performance very much to L- Linda Hamilton from Terminator 2. Uh, in that movie, that character, Sarah Connor, is also, people think she's crazy. I mean, she's... In almost she's in a loony place, right? She's in a psychiatric ward because she knows she has to stop something. She's she's well affirmed that there's something going on that she needs to stop. She has an estranged relationship with her son, again, talking Sarah Connor. So she's suffering from, in a sense, a PTSD. Of course, it didn't happen 40 years later, but right. still, and she has the toughness, Laurie Strode now, as a survivalist who's suffering from what happened. She's also, uh, I also characterize her as a Ripley from both the first Alien movie and Aliens. When you look at that character and how much that character changed, she'd seen something that really changed her life, and nobody's believing her. So Laurie Strode, in a sense, is a great amalgamation of those two characters, I believe, and the way that, that, that Jamie Lee Curtis plays her, I think, you cannot help but not only sympathize, but you really are rooting for her. And if I can for, for, for another minute, I think one important aspect that this movie brings up is, yes, when Halloween, in that movie, they had about five deaths. They make it a point to bring this up. And uh, one of the boyfriends mm-hmm. says... Come on, guys. Like, when you think about it by today's standards, like, what's the big deal? Like, he killed people. He was wearing a mask. Laurie escaped. He gets captured. Okay, story done. Big deal. Well, I like it, and he's right. When you look at today's standards for, for shootings that have happened, far more people have gotten killed, right? But what happens in Haddonfield has affected the town and the victims or the, even the survivors of that tragedy. And there are at least two here that were around at that time in the Halloween 2018 movie. They're really deeply affected by the events that happened. Uh, 
in that small town of Haddonfield because that could be anywhere USA. And the, the violence and the evil that happened to them, they will never forget, even though Lori's daughter wants her to forget, and even her granddaughter says, let it go. Well, let, let, let's, let's talk about that, right? Let, let's let that be the entry point into this. We, in essence, open up visiting Michael. We got our two podcasters, uh, crime, crime uh, podcast galore, whatever you want to call it. And there's a very deliberate kind of point to blur the line of it, it's the supernatural versus not. Like when they show the mask initially to Michael and he's not reacting, but everyone else there is just going crazy. It's are they going crazy because they're crazy or does it have this like effect on them? He does. Michael does. He does react. He as soon as the mask comes out, David Gordon Green makes it a point to show he tilts his head. It's the first time there's any movement. And then we see his shackled hands. But he does turn his head. There is something about the evil. And I'm not saying that the mask is... Is, is the mask from the mask? Right. I'm not saying it's the mask from the mask and that it's causing the evil. But for Michael Myers uh, and for everybody around, you got to... Like, his... Whatever it is that they can't quite put a finger on and what they're trying to study... I mean, dogs, throughout the history of Halloween, there are dogs who always... It's almost like when when when, um, when Dracula walks by horses or whatever, like the horses go crazy. It's similar here. And here we have the mental patients going crazy. Really interesting, fascinating scene. And, and then we jump into the credits. Mm-hmm. Like, so we're, you know, so that realm of what is happening here, we see Michael Myers... And then there's the there's Michael Myers, and then there's the shape slash boogeyman, mm-hmm. and in the conversation that takes place not too long after that scene, when our podcasters go to interview Laurie Strode, it is broken down like, well, you don't believe in the boogeyman, and the guy's like, I believe in Michael Myers as a psychopathic mm-hmm. killer, but the boogeyman, not so much, and she's like, well, you should. And so that's the that that to me is an, also an interesting piece of Halloween. It is certainly, and, and <clears throat> obviously, I think like you, in order to explain a lot of the things from the first to to now, forty years later, and kind of getting rid of whatever knowledge people may have, the the podcasters themselves were definitely a little bit more brutal to the point. Like I, I, I like Lori calling them out of like, okay, like what are you saying? I'm the bad guy here, right? Like. What is going on? Like, just because I have two two failed marriages and so forth, like, you forget, I was the victim in this situation. Right. Um, so I like that sort of pushback from and it's And it's societally topical today. You know, and again, they wanted to put the victim with the victimizer. Yeah. And that's pretty much what she says. She's more or less, just, get the fuck out. Yeah. Payment, please, get out. And I did like um, just just the payment as far as uh, she gave it to the granddaughter and so forth. So there was, it, it, you know, those are the moments that felt like Lori and it felt very humanistic. And because it's, in a sense, it's it's a little bit hard. You understand it, but it's sometimes hard to relate to a character like Lori. You know, like who, who do you know that basically has um, an army surplus in their house? Right. So 
but um, but I get it. It you know, and it's interesting because well, we've all heard stories about real people who have those bunkers, right? I mean, Cloverfield, Cloverfield hinged the major plot point was a guy who had a bunker because end of days to Lori, Michael Myers was going to be could potentially be end of days, and I'm going to be prepared this time. I wasn't prepared. I was an innocent teenager. And I had no idea what was going on. And that's an interesting th- thing, too, about Halloween is that it was it, 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 the, the original 1978. Um, that movie was about evil in tainting our, our most comfortable, what we believe to be our most comfortable places, whether it's our neighbors and neighborhood, whether it is our our bedroom, our living room. These are all places that we we would look at as as places of comfort and joy, and and on that particular fateful night, evil comes to that town, and really taints it all. You can't look at it under the same lens again. And Laurie Strode is a person who she even says to her daughter, "I don't know whether you're stupid or just ignorant." And her daughter's like, "No, mom." You know, the world is, the, you know, yeah. there's a lot of love in the world, mom, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you should listen to your mom a little bit more because I think what Halloween, at least the original, and even in this movie is, well, evil's I, in front of us. We choose whether or not we see it. And fair we, enough. But, but like, in that sense, I, I think it's a weird, it's an interesting kind of perspective of the movie because, yes, Lori's ready, but she's given up 40 years of her life. She has not lived. She might as well have died right then and there because she's done nothing since. This this one moment has defined her entire life thus far. Right. And even now, I'm not convinced that she's going to be over Michael Myers. And and furthermore, what I think is interesting textually, you know, when you start to look at film criticism and so forth, there's been a lot of written about about horror movies of the past as exploitative and the fact that in particular Laurie didn't win because of any particular skills she got lucky and so i think to a certain degree i don't know i I think they were aware of that in the writing process and said okay now we're gonna we're gonna make her prepared well i'm gonna okay i'm gonna um i agree but there is one aspect that that jamie lee curtis herself said and that brought her on board for this version and that is what she recalls from the original movie, 1978, is, you're right, she is a teenager, she's part of the honor society, she's the one who wants to do her homework, right? There comes a point towards the end of the movie where she's trying to protect the kids, and she says in that movie, do as I say, do what I say. And she says it was at that point that the Laurie Strode character gets changed forever. That's when she be. That's when she goes from high school babysitter to a protective woman, and her life changes when she says, "Do as I say," and she's basically telling, "Get the run out, go to go to the McKenzie's house, call for help. We need help. Just do what I tell you to do." And then from there on, when you think of the movie, when you watch the rest of that original movie, she is in survival mode. She is doing what she can 
in a world gone crazy because she does not understand why this particular shape, this this is chasing her. What has she done in life? Hence, we get the closet scene. She she's doing whatever she can. She stabs him, pokes him in the eye, and it's survival mode. Uh, Loomis comes in, you know, the good doctor. But it is that aspect that changes, and it carries over in this because she also says it to do as it, she says it when she's leaving a voicemail for her for her granddaughter. Mm-hmm. She, goes, do, she even says, "Do as I say. Listen to me." So it's changed, and for for victims, you know, it's this type of a tragedy. No matter how again, I don't want to belittle tragedy. Whether fifty people, two people, three people, how it affects people, it can affect them differently. I like the take here, but you're right. She essentially died inside and went into the survivalist mode. And in her thinking, this is best for my daughter. I have to teach her to be prepared because none of my friends were prepared for what happened. And I was the only one who saw this evil throughout the entire movie. None of my friends did. They're all dead. I have to be prepared and I have to prepare my daughter. I think it's a very interesting take. And what makes Halloween, at least for me, such a rewatchable movie? Let me let me ask you this, kind of going to the middle of the movie. Uh, there, There's that line that she says, I prayed for him to get out. <laughs> and then the sheriff says, you know, be careful what you wish for, because essentially at yeah. that point, you know, Michael Myers is out. Um, and I'm still trying to process that line because I, I understand the sentiment. Um, <clears throat> but in that sense, like, Again, like I, 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 one of my issues with the movie is that it doesn't. If you're going to go this route with Laurie, you don't fully explore it because again, there there is that duality between her and Michael, where they really aren't different. In that sense, uh, you know, they've both committed their life to a cause, in essence, and but for what purpose? Again, one of the one of the great things about the original is that you don't know why he's killing. Certainly not them, and in this respect, like. I get why, from Lori's perspective, she's preparing. But like, ultimately, was he ever going to come? You know, like from from that perspective, movie perspective, yes, Michael was always going to come back. Right. <laughs> but from Lori's perspective, like, right. he's in like, yeah, I, I'm much more with the kid that says like, it's 2018, time to move on. And and, and I get it, and I think maybe that's that wishful Laurie, thinking on my part well, for the character of Lori. Well, I think for Lori Strode, she understands cuz the, there's that great scene where she she gives her granddaughter the money. And she goes, "Oh, I'll put it towards college." And she's like, "Fuck college. Get out and live." Like she understands at least the writing understands that Lori Strode has sacrificed her entire well, 40 years of her life and has done really nothing other than build a bunker. And prepare for a potential encounter that may or may never happen, right? She sacrificed her life. She knows that that's not sane and or right. At least this is the way I viewed it. And she was like, just do something good. She goes, like, go to Mexico? She goes, can you imagine? And Laura Stress like, yeah, that's all I can do. And I really do think that there is a sense of, I was, I've been so affected. I have I haven't gone to Mexico. I tried to get married. I tried to have relationships. I tried to have a normal life, and it it didn't work out for me. I want you, granddaughter, to have a normal life. Don't worry about what your mom says. 
she's going to get over it. You you deserve a normal life. And even later in the movie, Lori, to her daughter, she says, I am sorry for the way that I raised you. I do love you very much. She goes, I have to go finish this. And she goes on into what I felt, you know, some of the tensest 15 minutes of recent, um, you know, in a movie. So I really think they took great care in writing this character. And she's tragic, but she's also uh, someone that you root for and you do root for. Because also, I will say, for a horror movie, I can't remember the last time that there were audience, like, applause-worthy moments in this movie. And there were at least two. Well, I I think that's what, if nothing else, the fact that you have three generations and you see the effect of all three. I do like that the the granddaughter, um, Allison and and Lori, have somewhat of a relationship. It's not the best, but it's certainly... (laughs) Far better than Karen and, and her. And so from that perspective, for me, even though I wasn't – like I felt sad for Lori, but I, I think the effect of all of this, when you look at uh, – like Karen didn't do anything and certainly now like even next generation, Allison ultimately didn't do anything. So when I look at it, she deserves to not suffer from this. And so the sacrifice that Lori is making to prevent the horrors from ever reaching her family – that I respect, and I think that that was more of the strength of the movie, and I wish it it just thread that a little bit more yeah. at times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because in, in essence, that's where, like, even though the movie overall kind of repeats a lot of the, the feelings and the emotions, right? When you sure. talk about evil entering the town, well, that's, again, same thing here. It's just there's one person conscious of it, like, hey, we got to be careful, but no one else is, and, and the fact that it is affecting Allison in that way, right? Um, the granddaughter, that's that's where the horror comes home. Yeah, and 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 to your point, because I think that there's another really good scene that also says a lot with the 40 years of preparation, okay? And it was interesting. So the two podcasters go to visit Laurie Strode, and one of them throws out, you know, they're transferring him, and she completes the, sec- the sentence. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know, to such and such place, 7 a.m. tomorrow. It's like she already knew. She knows everything that's going on, it seems, she goes to Smith's Grove with gun in hand. Like, I'm going to take care of this tonight. I'm going to take care of this. And she doesn't have the courage to do it. She doesn't know what she's doing. That's when she shows up at the restaurant. The scene where she can't do it says, <clears throat> you know, when she was like, I prayed, you know, I prayed for 40 years that he would escape or get out so that I could kill him. And here she is where she has an opportunity and she just, she can't do it. She can't be that evil because this entity is just boarding a bus being taken away. And I think that goes against what have I been doing for 40 years? This is it. This is it for me. I can take care of this problem right now. And she can't do it and she's left a crying mess and she goes to the restaurant and we see what happens and then we get the backstory and the daughter like mm-hmm. this this was my life I, I found that to be very interesting that she couldn't pull the trigger until she literally was in harm's way it, it, it certainly is interesting because then obviously that has an effect on her mentally it's you know how much more justification do you need 
in, in, in that sense, like to kill somebody. They, they, they've already, they, it has affected you this much. They've ruined your entire life. They've killed off your friends. And you need another reason from this person to actually kill him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is something very awful about and that I sort of notion. I can't go over that line because then I would be no better than him. Or so, you know, and I found that to be very interesting. Now, there is one other character in the movie that was that was affected by the violence, and that's Will Patton's cop character, okay, Frank. I believe his name is now. This I found very interesting, and I, I found the, 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 the exposition to be interesting because, and it was exposition, you know, we learned that Frank was a first responder in 1978, to help Laurie and to hunt down the shape, Michael Myers. And he knew what Michael Myers brought to the little town of Haddonfield. He knew back then that, that, that people died in this community where everybody knows each other. And, you know, he knew Dr. Loomis. Um, and, in fact, he was the one, they say, that kept Loomis from actually killing Michael Myers there and then and learning from his mistake, so to speak, and, and you know, seeing Michael Myers' name on the, on the call sheet of who escaped from that bus, that, he even said, this one gives me great concern. Like, it's 40 years to the day. And... He, too, was affected by the violence, even though he didn't lose anybody as far as we know. But he knew of what Michael Myers could do to Haddonfield. And there's also the randomness. That's the thing about the original Halloween is we don't know. We don't know what spurred him to kill his sister. We don't know why he's tagged on to these teenagers. Well, let's talk about it because they they make a point to revisit the grave again. Uh, You know, and, and Judith, Judith... So they they kind of try, at least movie-wise, to go down the well, but they never... Fo- like, even if they said, like, we will never know my- why Michael Myers killed his sister, but they never they never do that. And so they try to shroud it in mystery all the while trying to solve it and do neither. Um, so how did you respond to that? Again, it's one of the great mysteries, I think, of... Uh, of Halloween, the original, you you have to remember too. Nobody expected. Okay, so when we see the clown outfit, we see that that the, the, the grisly murder in the first movie. When you see it for a first time, without knowing anything about it, without knowing what Halloween is, when they take the mask off and you see it's a six-year-old boy, right? That that was a shock to audiences. Okay, we all know the story by now. So the grave was also something that was used that the tombstone was used in the first movie that was it was taken out it was taken out it was stolen by michael myers and it's interesting in this movie because they go to the grave it's the only reason why people could visit haddonfield was because of this tombstone because of its notoriety and our podcasters go there to see this and somebody else is watching them too and it's Michael, the escaped Michael. And something brings him back to that cemetery. Um, I don't know what the lure is, the lure of, of his sister, but he obviously at 21 goes back to steal the tombstone. And now he's coming back 
to the origins of his first victim, and he's there, and he sees the people. They don't see the evil except for the one, the, the, the uh, what would you call it, the, the gravekeeper woman. Mm-hmm. She notices something. The other people don't notice the evil that, that, that's watching them see this grave. Is there an explanation? There was never an explanation. Dr. Loomis said it himself. It's like he's just pure, like he's, there was nothing behind his eyes. We can't. So, I can't do it. He's it's so just let, pure let, and simply evil. Let's let's talk about the plot point that you and I dislike them together collectively because the, <clears throat> the 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 new doctor character he's the one that's trying to push forward these explanations and he's kind of the vehicle of it and it never goes anywhere and then the the idea like a couple of things I thought could have happened. None of which happened, and maybe this is the statement the movie's trying to make. I don't know, but but in that sense, why explore it at all? Was when when they when they ran over Mike Myers and he takes the mask. I was like, is he going to take up the mantle? I was very curious about that. Like, did he do this? Did he did he study Mike Myers because he's so obsessed that he wants to be Mike Myers? And I thought that would have been an interesting perspective. Okay, no, um, Mike Myers is alive, and you know he's going to help him. And he's going to study him. At that point, to me, the movie could have been a lot stronger had you kept the Doctor alive to the very end. And it, he believed in something in Mike Myers that, that he could learn something, and then he just that's when he dies. But to have it happen so fast, I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't appreciate What were your right. issues with My with issues the with the Doctor are a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, he said he spent his life studying and you know he was a student of dr loomis's they make it a point i was a student of dr loomis's i've studied i've made it an obsession now loomis was the true obsession of 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 of, or i should say loomis had the truest of obsessions about michael myers okay um within the universe he was the you know he was the balance he was you know he's the guy that 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 said he's evil Countless times people would not believe him. And if for a person to study Dr. Loomis and come away with really nothing, it, that's what I got away with. Like, if you truly believed in what Loomis said, there would be nothing more to study about Michael Myers and what Michael Myers had to do or, or meant to do. And so for him, it was just like, not only it just it gave a really shitty death to the to, to Will Patton's character, I felt. And then he makes that 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 then he makes the statement, so that's what it feels like, Michael. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like so this guy wasn't about Michael's pure evil. He wanted to study the evil, and if he really was a student of Dr. Loomis, he would have known that there is Michael is indescribable. He's just, it's just evil. You're not going to change it. There's nothing to study about it. You know, Loomis's thing, and there's a great thing on the tape, terminate. Termination is the only thing that I can suggest about this, this thing. And then you got to incinerate it. But this doctor was like, oh, there's so much that we can learn. And he was, and that's the other crazy thing, too, when you talk about a doctor he was ruining his observation because he wanted to take Michael Myers and literally put him in front of Laurie Strode. 
and let's see what happens. You know, and he also said almost enviously Loomis was the only one to see the animal uncaged. No. I want to do that. It's you know, it that's a different thing from Laurie Strode who says, "Yeah, I want him to escape so I can kill him. I want that out of my life." He was like he was Loomis was the only one. And now he has this opportunity. And when he kills the cop, listen, if you Number one, you couldn't have a Loomis-type character in this particular movie unless there was a way to either get the character out of the way halfway through the movie or you kill him because ultimately this movie is the story of Laurie Strode and Michael Myers. And when she was... Go ahead. Well, just off of that, right? I I think it could... Like, if... You know, I I think it would have been an interesting turn where Loomis helps her at the the original one now he tries like she has a shot to kill mike myers and he gets in the way and she's like get the hell out of the way right now i am gonna kill you mm-hmm. and she kills him because he doesn't get out of the way i think that you know that would have been to me that would have been just something stronger with the character yeah I, I just think this i personally think the character just wasn't strong and he was an idiot like it, like he did he really for, for for a character like as I said who claims that he studied with Loomis and he read everything and he's made it an obsession Loomis made Michael Myers an obsession and nobody listened he makes Michael Myers an obsession but for different reasons he wants to see why Michael Myers kills he wants to see him out in the open and do this and when he turns on the when he turns on the cop, that to me was like, oh my god! I, it's like, and we lost. A, like I liked, I liked Will Patton's character, Frank, and for him to be taken out by the by the of all people, that doctor. You know, I was glad that he got his head stomped on. You know, I was I was like, good, good, good riddance, because that was a plot thread. And the more that that character was in the movie, the the he just became he was just annoying to me. Because he was even when Laurie says, "Oh, so you're the you're the new Loomis, so you're the other Loomis," you know, very meta comment. Yeah, very much so. And it it just I was like wondering where are they going with this? Because he wanted to, and again, if he studied Loomis, Loomis wanted to hunt Michael Myers down. This guy was like, "Oh no, we're going to capture him because." More studying need be done. Well, it's been, like, to your point too. If Laurie's done this. More studying. What what what's there to study? You know, it's he is who he is, and he's not. Obviously, he hasn't changed in forty years as well. Where Laurie has changed. Yeah, I feel. But he was the weakest character for me in the Certainly. entire movie. Certainly, and that's and in, in an odd sense, it's a, it's a weird feeling for me because I disliked him, but then still to have him killed off in the middle. I, I, I felt like, okay, well, you had him be such an importance. Now yeah. you took him away. Yeah, and then he tries to be Michael Myers by putting on the mask, and that was silly to me. And But he never I, does, yeah, he never he, does anything beyond that. Outside of kill the cop. Yeah. It was, it was convenient. Know, yeah. It was convenient to get those characters out of the way because ultimately they couldn't be in the rest of the story. They, ultimately, it comes down to Michael and Laurie, and Laurie needs to do this partly on her own. And I think the movie builds itself up with 
family. And so ultimately those characters were either going to be written out in some way, whether they were maimed or injured and they couldn't go on, or killed. So from a script writing, I understand why they died. It's just the execution. Yeah. Listen, you know, if if we're going to talk about killings, I thought... I thought the babysitting portion of this, um, that those were some great kills. First off, I I, I love the little boy. <laughs> and we were t- oh my god, he was he's in the movie for five eight minutes and he was fantastic. Yeah, he's like, I ain't going up there. Send his ass. Yeah, go- <laughs> that was the funniest part. Oh, I'll go up with you. No, send Dave. Send Dave to go up. There. <laughs> yeah, kudos to that kid. By the way, he was, he was in. Um, the kid was. Great. He was in uh, Blockers, one of my favorite movies in, of this yeah. year, and uh, so now he, he kind of plays Who the. Was sto- he in Blockers? He played he was- the same stoner kid that uh, went out with John Cena's daughter. Yes. Yeah. So. I. You know, and that's the thing too. I, I actually sort of kind of liked the kids here, like especially those. Like I didn't. They seemed unlike Rob Zombie's version. These these kids seemed more typical kids they could swear without it being over the top they're just being kids and that little kid was he he was hysterical he was just great um yeah i really enjoyed uh i really enjoyed it and yeah i sort of i actually had a, a bit of sympathy or empathy for for the victims i wish the i wish uh, allison's boyfriend would have gotten it but <laughs> that was that, that felt like a cheap plot point too like just of course he's kissing off some other girl but but i do want to talk because when you talk about easter eggs like this was in a sense easter egg galore yes um number one the fact that we'd never see dave actually die but he's stabbed and just left to hang much like the the, the guy from the original i have that uh i have uh like i said i i did some I have an extensive reference in Easter egg-ish thing. Give us, uh, give us the specifically. I'll give us a, well, I, I want to do, well, okay. We, we want to do Easter eggs because I had a couple of cool things about production too um, and about John Carpenter, but we could start off with with Easter egg-ish. Yeah, because uh, I mean, I I'm curious to know. Because to, to end. Because even, even, even if you know, like if you know the original Halloween, the fact that. Um, it's Bob. Yeah, the, the 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 whole um the whole Casper ghost costume, right? And everyone's like waiting, like, okay, it's gonna be Michael, and they they, they for the true fans, they subvert your expectation because it's not him underneath, right? Um, so that's another Easter egg, yes, and, but but the ghost. And what I like is that it plays against expectations in that respect for the yeah. people and for the people that uh, haven't seen, let's say, the original or don't know the full mm-hmm. lore or whatever, it still plays very. Um, nerve-wracking, because either way, you don't know. Until you know, you don't know. I didn't realize that David Gordon Green's, like, perchance for suspense and intensity until watching Halloween. He knows that craft. He knows his craft. And that scene in particular, when you have the cop going in and just seeing the ghost... Did you notice the pumpkin in the fish tank? I did. Right? Like, and what's great, like, what I love setup. about the, se- the the setup is great, but it's not, he's not, 
he has a certain knowledge too, right? Yes. And so it's not like suspense for the sake of movie magic. It's right. character driven. Yes. And we also know that this character, because he is a, for lack of better word, well, he is a first responder to the bus crash, right? And we see like he's looking at Carnage and he's a guy that's like, whoa. He's like seeing stuff that's frightening him. So when he's going into the house under a domestic disturbance, which is what the little kid probably called in, right? Because well, but but he was told, yeah. "Run, go get help," and he runs out and he calls the cops. He gets somebody to call the cops. Domestic disturbance. He's the first guy on. He knows Michael Myers is loose, and yeah, going into the bedroom and seeing a somewhat hulking figure too. Right, and coming up, and it was just the way that it was built, and being the recall to the original movie where we know what the ghost is, uh, you know, Bob the ghost, when he pulls it off, you're like, oh my god! And so many things are happening because Laurie Strode shows up, and it's a great scene too, where we see the bedroom where the cop is, and it tracks on over, and Laurie sees the shape for the first time. And she takes a shot, which gets the cop out of his reverie. And then we see Michael Myers walking down the hall. He turns around and he's like, he knows exactly who it is. Takes off a couple of shots himself. And even when he comes downstairs, he's still like, he can be anywhere. Like, I still have to be about my wits. And then we come up to the the pinning on the wall, which is you know comes right out of the original, where Bob got pinned up to a to, to a cabinet. And I like the fact that we didn't have to see that. Yes, it's just like we we see Dave going in. He's kind of hesitant. You know, if nothing else, like I, I got to applaud Dave for having the courage to go in. This. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and unfortunately, it ends in his demise. Yeah, and he gets yeah, and and it's surprisingly there are there are a lot of off camera deaths or deaths that we don't necessarily see and we see the aftermath of mm-hmm. when you think about it david gordon green did a i think he did a fantastic job so that when he didn't he didn't pummel he doesn't pummel the audience with gore although you can see the aftermath of it uh the gas station scene is is one that comes to mind again it was it was greatly framed as the male podcaster or no, it was the female. She was asking about the loo or the bathroom. And as she's walking, we see behind her, we do see Michael Myers just beating the shit out of a mechanic, right? So we don't see that death happen. When the other male podcaster comes in, we don't we didn't see the death happen, but we see the aftermath of the attendant. Uh same thing with going on to into when the shape arrives at Haddonfield. You know, we didn't see the old lady, you know, with the curlers making the ham sandwich. We didn't see her get beat, but we heard it. You know, I thought the chair flying across the room was a nice touch. You know, he was really great at at, at balancing kills and the violence. And we could see the aftermath and the violence that that aftermath led to, I thought was really well done. And then every now and then he did have the... You know, he had the gore factor when the guy got his head booted in. <laughs> that or even just to kill like a child, that was very early on. Yes. I, I, that was very deliberate as far as 
well, number one, as far as I'm concerned, but um, as far as Michael, like that's what sets him up to to be like, okay, he he is still the same killer. Like he doesn't care, man, woman, child. And I have to say, we're t- I was talking about this earlier today. I believe in that entire franchise too. I mean, you're hard pressed in in slasher movies in general, but in Halloween, that w- that had to have been the youngest age wise that was killed. I mean, what twelve? Yeah. Everybody else is in their teens, well into high school, seniors in high school. Not this kid. I was a little bit surprised. That was dark for me. I thought the kid was gonna, because again, they were sort of kind of setting it up like the original Halloween. And the nurse gets out of the car, and Michael Myers gets in and drives off. I thought the kid was going to get out of the car, but nay, nay. I was like, whoa, and that set a tone for me right there and then. It's like, okay. that, that Doing was things a, right this time, he was Michael. A, he was a kid. Yeah. yeah, he was like, he was literally a kid. So let's, uh, you know, I, I definitely want to get into the production stuff, but before we do, I, I want to talk about the ending. Okay. This is the final show. Like this is like if this is a boxing match, this is what we came right. to watch. Lori versus Michael. Yeah, so many rounds. Now this is the last round. Right. Uh, how did you? You said it was the fi- be- best fifteen minutes of suspense or horror. Or I forget how you fully described yeah. it, but best it fifteen minutes in a long time. Minutes of suspense. I mean, just again the way that it was filmed, and again for for fan service. You know, the references from the, the throwback and the recall to the original, which I think is part of what led to, because these are the scenes, this is the part in which in all the times that I've seen the movie where the audience erupted into applause and people were like, yeah, I was like, oh my God. The way he, the, 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 the way, again, that it was written and David Gordon Green set it up, I mean, just from the beginning, from from when Michael comes onto the property, um, we saw the the scene in the trailer where he goes through the he breaks the glass window in the front door and lifts Lori Strode up. How is she going to get out of this? He gets his fingers blast off, um, and then her hunt of him in the house, which I felt was really suspenseful because they kept the house primarily dark. And you know that he lives in the shadows and where and when he'll pop out. And, of course, we see the slatted closet, the infamous slatted closet door, which, of course, Laurie does not forget, um, which leads us upstairs. We also notice we have that thing where the, the bars are rolling down. I'm like, okay, you understand what she's doing. Um, and then when the final, like, showdown in the room with the mannequins, like comes and she gets thrown off the balcony, like and he looks down. She's there. Allison comes home. The shape looks, you know, he, he focuses his attention to that, and then when he looks back down and she's gone like a ghost. That too, the audience was like going crazy. And when it comes downstairs, and then to me the reveal with the the whole the whole bunker, the basement. That was great, and I really felt that um, uh, I forget the actress's name, Judy Greer. Judy Greer, when she was playing the rabbit, mm-hmm. like, "Mom, I can't do this without you." And then he comes in the shape. She goes, "Gotcha, P 
people were going nuts and he gets shot. But then we go to the Dean Cundy ish. Laurie Strode is now in the shadows. You mm-hmm. don't, she has become the ghost and she pushes him down and they're coming up and he's like, you see, honey, this isn't, this isn't a cage. It's a trap. Well, let, let, let me, let me, I, I thought all that stuff was great. But as far as the ending, I don't know if like I'm satisfied ending, or not. The okay, well, the be, burning or the burning because in this sense, right, <sighs> it does leave the door open for is he dead or is he alive? Because when they show the burning aspect of it, we don't see Michael. There is a very deliberate shot. There are two things. Two things happen in the movie that leave it wide open. We see Michael with the flames around him, looking up. Okay. They get out of the house. The house goes to blow up. Then there is, we go back to the bunker, and there's a very deliberate shot where the camera is what would have been a couple of steps behind where Michael would have been when we last left him, and that was at the stairs, looking up at the bars, watching them flee, and when we go back to that shot, there is no Michael Myers. He's just not there. Okay, and then at the very, very end of the movie, at as the as the credits are over, it is deliberate that we hear the breathing from behind the mask of Michael Myers, which leads me to believe that they were leaving the door open for which is Laurie I mean, I, and Michael's next adventure. <laughs> I, you know, in, the, in that respect, like I, I just. If it, it, it's something felt special, like this is going to be the final showdown, and because I love Laurie so much, I just want her to win. And this is her goal: is to kill him. And so for for her to just put everything in flames, like it goes back to Halloween too. Everything the, the hospital went to flames. He survived. It's like, it's 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 a direct uh, to me. That's one of the many beats that this movie takes from Halloween too. Also, don't forget, don't forget from H two O. H2O ends on a very definitive, like in an extremely definitive ending, where Laurie Strode lops off the head of Michael Myers with an axe. I mean, that's how it is. And that movie ends with just the catharsis of it's over, and it ends with the breathing of Laurie Strode, not Michael Myers, and his head rolls off. You can't get any more definitive of an ending but damn, those writers sure came up with one of the stupidest ways to bring Michael Byers back for Halloween Resurrection. But H2O has as definitive of an ending for the Laurie Strode story that you could ever have in a movie. He got decapitated. Well, I'm not, the, the point is I'm <laughs> so, not trying to watch that movie no, in order but, to make the, a happier saying, ending for me because of the, you know. You know, I, I just, for him to live, I think, look... It, They've talked potential of sequel. Does Jamie Lee Curtis come back? We don't know. I mean, her wound, I mean, she did get stabbed with a pretty big damn hunting kind of a knife. But what would... was it then in that respect? Like I, I, I get it. I, I get the commentary of you never know how life's gonna go. You, like life's unpredictable, right. evil can come from any moment, uh, sure. life's not fair type of stuff. Lori dies. But in that sense, I want my movies to be a little bit more and like, what is Lori's life worth? She spent 40 years trying to kill him, and if all she gets out of this is just death, and he lives? Pretty shitty. I don't want to live anymore if that's the case. I don't disagree, but, you know, you also think about how the first movie ended. first movie does not end on a good note. 
You think it does, but it doesn't. This movie ends, at least on a more positive note, and the way I also looked at it, too, was her, her, uh, her granddaughter, Allison. Her granddaughter, Allison, held on to the knife. She did what her grandmother didn't do throughout all of the original Halloween. She was always dropping and throwing away her weapons. I really thought that it was an interesting... And they freeze frame it, too, on that on that scene. So we see daughter, mother, granddaughter. See the three generations. And the granddaughter, who helped them escape by stabbing Michael Myers with the knife, she still has the knife in her hand, and it's still clutched there. Her life is forever changed, right? The daughter's life, too, because she was sort of a jerk to her mom. I get it. You didn't have the childhood that most people did. You were taken away by child services. I could get the anger, but your mom was right to an extent. Like, so it's, I just, it's just hard to see. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, okay, even if you were right, right. A clock is right twice. A broken clock <laughs> is, you know, a broken, a broken clock is right, right twice, twice a day. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, I get it. You know, it, it ends definitely, it, it's, it's open ended. And, you know, I think after the box office results, um, you know, at some point, we will uh, be dealing with a sequel. And listen, I think it's Blumhouse. So whatever the sequel is, I still think that it will be character and story driven. And who knows? Maybe they'll get Danny McBride and company back to, to, to work on the sequel. Who knows? I don't know. Well, and before we talk about all of that, let's, <clears throat> uh, let's, let's shift gears and talk about production. Sure. Um, I am... Quite amazed that they they were supposed to start shooting in October of 2017. They didn't until pretty much the end of January 2018. Right. That's a pretty fast turnaround time. I believe it was 24 days. Yeah, which, 24 days. Which is pretty quick. You know, uh, it's in indie terms. I mean, it's kind of on par. Usually you get maybe like 30 days for an indie movie. Roughly uh, 10 million budget. Uh, but uh, but the speed at which they they were able to work and you know twenty four days they they got a lot done in those twenty four days a lot <laughs> a lot a lot like a lot and David Gordon Green even talks about the efficiency you know he even said we've talked about it on Anatomy of a Movie many a time too where directors who've worked with bigger budgets and then they come down to smaller budgets they they have to think differently but they use their time so much more efficiently in getting the shots done. Um, and David Gordon Green says, yeah. He goes, I had this. We had to, we, we couldn't spend a lot of time doing certain things. Like, we just had to shoot. We had to think about this, how it was going to be filmed, and this. We didn't have the luxury of budget and time, so we just approached it differently. We, and... I really like you're right when 24 days to, to and and putting the movie together. I will say this from a production standpoint. Um, and again, this is something we talk a lot uh, on this show is the marketing and the trailering. Right. I have to say, like, we'll always say, oh, there was another trailer that had a scene that wasn't in the movie. Right. I think this Halloween 2018, as far as its marketing went, I think it was so egregious about there were so many scenes that I had seen in marketing, whether it's a trailer, a television spot, whatever, an online thing that just weren't in the movie, period. I saw different versions of scenes that never made the movie. Um, This movie did have reshoots that 
that word had gone out. They 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 did yeah, a lot June, of research. They did they did a lot of research in June, um, in particular because of responses <clears throat> to certain things. So yeah. so they did that. Um, one of the we'll, we'll talk about those, but one of the funny things I find uh, so the first movie takes place in Pasadena, not story wise, but location wise. This one takes yeah. place in South Carolina. <laughs> So, Illinois uh, is interchangeable. Uh, uh, well, outside of the first two movies, which were shot locally, the remainder of the movies were shot. One was shot in Utah. They were, they were shot all over. You know, many places doubled for Haddonfield, Illinois, which doesn't exist anyways. <laughs> yeah, but, but Illinois certainly yeah. has an architectural style. <laughs> Absolutely. That is not evident in the movies, but no. neither here nor there. No. No, so, and we never see the Myers house, which I'm assuming they just trashed, but it is here in Little Pasadena. All I can tell you is that you can, I have pictures in front of the original Michael Myers house, and it is in Pasadena. In Pasadena, it, it is a Pasadena historical landmark, actually. Look at that. So, uh, but you, but you were saying <clears throat> that we we were talking about the reshoots and yeah. You know. So, uh, so reshoots and things, and we talked earlier about uh, John Carpenter himself having input into this movie. So, um, one story that David Gordon Green had said at the convention, and I found this to be really fascinating, was they had originally um, scripted and were and were planning on shooting, and by planning, they were building the sets. Uh, they were going to do a prologue and take us back to 1978. And they were going to show Michael Myers being captured. And they had it all written out. In fact, they were building the house that had the balcony for which he he, he goes over. And John Carpenter looked at the script, read it, and he said to him, he goes, get rid of it. And David goes with the no, no, you know, we're going under the assumption, and I get it, there's probably a lot of people who probably never have seen Halloween. And he's like, it doesn't matter. John Carpenter was like, it doesn't matter. You're wasting time, you're also wasting money. Because you don't need it. You're like, people will watch it after, and if they haven't watched it, they will go back and watch it after. The way you have this scripted, they don't need it. It is unnecessary. They listened to him. They stopped filming. However, they did repurpose the house that they built. That was Laurie Strode's mm-hmm. house in the woods. So it still had the balcony, which allowed them to do that great recall from the original movie regardless. So in a sense, they got their reverse prologue <laughs> shot, yes. and they were able to still use the house that they built specifically for one scene that was jettisoned from the movie. I thought that was pretty cool. And again, they listened to to uh, John Carpenter. I felt if there was a prologue, it might have been sort of cool, but highly unnecessary when you think about it after yeah. watching the movie. Yeah, I don't think you need it. Sometimes your instinct is to over-explain, but sure. you don't need to. Not always. No, not at especially, all. Uh, especially the whole premise that you're going for, like the original, is it doesn't necessarily have to explain too much. Sure. Um, so. And it also led to... You know, they had all this thing going on, and like I talked about, it was all about simplicity. You know, the the philosophy and the rule of thumb was we need to make this as simple, simple, simple as possible. Which, you know, for ten million in twenty four days, I think they did. Yeah, and yeah. and it had the same spirit, like we were talking like Carpenter has a lot of tracking shots yep. and 
certainly this movie had a lot of those absolutely throughout um the use of we, we've talked about it the use of shadows and light yeah. in particular and being able to utilize those throughout speaking of which we've talked a lot about jamie lee curtis coming back but the original actor that played nick castle he he comes back he comes back so we got we got the true OG cast. Yeah, which is which is, you know, James, Jude Courtney, I believe, or is it Courtney James, Jude Courtney, I believe, who plays Michael Myers or the Shape now. But we get the original Nick Castle, who was a friend of John Carpenter's, and uh, he basically got the job because. Um, John Carpenter liked the way he walked. <laughs> and, you know, That's a compliment. Mask, yeah, he's like, I like the way you walk. It's it's uh, when you're underneath that mask, it's scary. <laughs> so um, saw him at the saw, saw Nick Castle at the convention as well. Uh, Nick Castle went on to have a, a fairly decent career as a director. He did The Boy Who Can Fly, which is a really good movie, and one of my favorites, uh, The Last Starfighter, um, with Lance, uh, uh, not Lance, uh, Lance Guest. Lance Guest, who was also at the convention because Lance Guest was in Halloween too, but I talked to him about Last Starfighter. It was a really good movie. I like that movie, but yeah, it was great that they had this family back. They also, at the end of the movie, it is dedicated to Mustafa Akkad. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Malik Akkad, who's taking up the ma- the mantle for Trankus, uh, you know this this <laughs> this is their life being. So they want to make as many Halloween movies. You know they they want to keep uh, they want to keep this cash flow flowing, but they did a good job here. I think they did as good a job equally here with putting the thought into H two O. That that yeah, I think they did a good job. And you know we we've we've sort of talked about the specifics of it, but but the general sense also was to have a sense of deja vu visually, you know, through the various things, but but subvert it. And I think. They were able to really do that overall. Um, I mean, even just kind of certain shots, right? It'd, it'd be fun to to do a comparison. I'm sure someone on YouTube will eventually. But like the the kids walking down the street, going to school, and it's it, it's all reminiscent of even 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 just like the the actual way it's shot. Yeah, is pretty comparable. Absolutely. Like, and and it's three. It's you know we've got Vicky, Allison, and Dave. Walking down the walking down the sidewalk, just having conversation um, as teenagers do, and going to school. Um, it, you're right. It was just they didn't really take away too much from the design of the original, um, but they just made it contemporary. The kids were contemporary, probably more age appropriate than you know. I mean, PJ Souls, uh, Annie. Uh, in, in uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, I believe, were in their twenties, so a little bit older than than your average high school kid. But the kids, I thought, were really good in the way that it was shot. That way, the tracking shot, which again is a, is a great homage to not only the original but Halloween too. Yeah. In that, um, so I want to. I definitely want to spend time talking about the music because when you talk about it being <clears throat> the same but different. Certainly, um, it's it's the same but different. When and, and John Carpenter, like we mentioned earlier, that was one of his requests. He does come back to do this. Uh, Cody Carpenter is also one of the composers, yeah. as is uh, Daniel Davies. But yeah. um, not to, to be honest, not as much of the theme as I imagined it would have. No, um, the soundtrack is really is is interesting too. And just like a little aside, 
you know, within the past, I'm going to say within five years, too, John Carpenter has sort of kind of taken this movie, or I should say music track. He's released a couple of albums, believe it or not. Um, uh, One of them is an anthology uh, of his movie soundtracks and scores. Another one is called The Lost Soundtracks, and these are their cuts that could have been songs used in his movies but they're not they're original um tracks and he tours he's in fact he is touring right now he'll be in los angeles on none other than halloween um so he he tours and music has always been um it been a part of his life in fact he uh nick castle and um Oh, Wallace. Tom, 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 I believe it's Tommy Wallace. Um, he, he directed Halloween 3, and he also worked on Halloween. Um, they're all friends. They're all, um, um, in a sense, musicians. So they all played music together. So music's a big part of him. Uh, throughout the years, he collaborated with this other gentleman by the name of Alan Holworth, who I actually saw in concert during the Halloween convention. It's just very interesting because a lot of the movie is... For lack of better words, it's, it's almost like EDM. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of it is synth and from a computer. So it was really interesting to see Alan Hallworth, uh, Hallworth on a stage with a Mac. And literally, it was a Mac with a synthesizer. And seeing him, like, pressing buttons and doing this. And I'm like, dude, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, when are you going to do this and have us all get up and dance to um, the theme of Prince of Darkness? Uh, so... But yeah, what he does here in this soundtrack, which is very interesting, yes, he repurposes the Halloween theme. It is the Halloween theme, right? But when you look at the the tracks, he takes real, it's done purposely where he says, Michael kills, like a track will be called Michael kills, Michael kills again, the shape kills. The shape returns to Haddonfield. He, and there's a definite like line in the movie where we go from Michael Myers when until he puts the mask back on and he becomes the shape. Yeah. And he goes, and the tracks are different. And then he repurposes, and we get the end. Um, there is a, um, the final track of the soundtrack is called Halloween Triumphant. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's. Listen, if you're a fan of of John Carpenter and his soundtracks, and the soundtracks are pretty, I, I have a lot of them. Um, this is really, it's a decent soundtrack. I like it a lot. It's it's really uh, interesting to listen to when you, and it never, the music to Halloween was never overstated, and it really to watch. And this is a John Carpenter story to watch Halloween when they showed it to execs without any music at all, the execs were bored stiff. And then when he added the music, it added that element. And I think that the music in this movie works the same. I think it does, so. but it, yeah, the, the first movie, like they, they kept going to basically two to three tracks or like the, maybe they had some variation, yeah. right? But, variation. but, um, but overall it was there. And the, the chillness of that first one came from the repetition. Mm-hmm. This one, for me, didn't have as much repetition, right? Um, so I was kind of, it didn't. I was just kind but, of interested in that that the, they didn't go that route. But but it's there. Um, there's a track 
uh, on the album called Lori's Theme. It's extremely short. If it's even a minute, I'd be surprised. And basically, it's, it's 44 just a, seconds. 44 yeah. seconds. And basically, if you play it, it's a repurpose of the that theme that you hear repeatedly in the original of. You know, it was the, it was the slower theme of if Lori was walking or whatever. It's just a repurpose of that when you listen to it. Those familiar notes are there, mm-hmm. you know. Um, well, it does, it does heighten the moments that, like, I, I, they, they very purposefully, from what I remember, um, use the theme to come in on a very specific moment, and it's a trigger for the audience of, like, now it's on. Right. So when it does come in, boom, like, this is the final fight. Like, you know, before, yeah. that that was the pregame stuff. Now, now we're in it. So I yep. did appreciate that. Yeah. Um, all right, so... Uh, Going into it, we're doing something a little bit different, at least for us. Normally, we cover movies a week after it releases to give you, the audience in particular, a time to see the movie. We're doing we're doing it the basically on the day that it releases, right. the morning that it releases. So, uh, but the good news is, a lot of you have already seen the movie as according to box office numbers. Yeah. Um, right now, I have an estimated 7.7 million from mm-hmm. Thursday night previews. Yeah. Going in all weekend, an estimated 60 million dollars, which they've been wrong about these sort of predictions in the past. But I think, if anything, I think that might be a little bit lower than perhaps it does. I think it's going to over-index. The only thing that I can see taking away from it is, believe it or not, um, we're, we're especially here in Los Angeles. Uh, baseball playoffs are still going on and they've been huge in the ratings and here in Los Angeles you can bet that the Los Angelinos are going to be rooting for the Dodgers they may not be going to the movies tonight and or tomorrow to see how their team fares um you know and a lot of people do watch that and those do actually take a hit on people going out it's not just movies that take a hit but fine dining and such bars obviously make money so it'll be interesting to see personally i do think it's going to be it's going to over index whatever they have yeah i won't be surprised <clears throat> i mean it, it this is one of those movies that it has an 82 percent on ron tomatoes thus far and uh i oh, haven't i haven't seen the uh, cinema score but i imagine at its lowest, it'll probably be an A minus. At its lowest, I think so too. Uh, I also think they picked a great release date because mm-hmm. not only are you going to have this weekend, you're going to have the weekend going into Halloween. So you're going to have really decent midweeks. You'll have another good second weekend. Well, there'll most likely be a drop, but it won't be an off the cliff kind of a drop. There's not a lot of movies coming out next week no. that I think will compete. No. Um, Hollywood has gone back to not releasing horror movies like on Halloween. That was a big contention. I can bore you folks with stories about the release pattern of, of Saw, right? But it's not a big... Uh, which Blumhouse actually repeated when they came out with Paranormal Activity. But you're going to have that whole... The weekend prior to Halloween, so you'll have... Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then you're going to have Monday, Tuesday, and I wouldn't be surprised that some people would go on Wednesday. So I think it's going to, I think the hold on this movie is going to be really strong. Listen, and they're going to make their money back. They're going to do really well. 
for a $10 million, there's probably 30 to 40 all-in advertising, marketing, and such. They did a hell of a job, and they marketed the hell out of this movie. Um, What's well, the, the 40th, 40th anniversary, uh, essentially? Yeah. And the cast was all over it, and they were everywhere, everywhere, um, from Comic-Con to Toronto, where it debuted, and it got really positive, strong word of mouth out of Toronto. So I think it's gonna it's gonna do really well. Yeah, I think. I, I so. I'm excited to kind of see. Unfortunately, you know, uh, all we can do is kind of speculate at this point, and in hindsight, in the comments section, we'll get to uh, really kind of yeah, confirm. But that's absolutely. where that's what makes this show great is that we, in essence, start the conversation. But you at home. Yeah. You get to continue it with us. We, we do enjoy your comments. We enjoy what you have to say and continue to do so. Even if, uh, I'm, I, like, when, I, when I'm floored by you guys, you know, six months down the line after we've done a certain show, you guys are still commenting once you've caught up on a certain movie. Obviously, we would prefer that you, you watch the movies in the theater, right. but whatever the case may be, like, that's fantastic. Right. Yeah, so what, I agree. What were you say? No, I was going to go. I, I, I wanted to go over some of the references and Easter eggs yes, for, for our fans. So uh, I did this whole thing, and I'll try to nutshell it as best I can. But just starting from the beginning of the movie, when our podcasters go to that prison, right? First off, we see Michael's Michael's left eye is scarred over from when Laurie in the original movie poked him in the eye with a hanger. We also notice a scar on his left left side of his neck and that's when Laurie poked him with the knitting needle taken from the first one they kept that in there um Halloween 2 is uh I think very heavily referenced in this version uh starting off with things like um the kids talking about wasn't he your grandmother's brother or something and they dispel that right away um and then Something really uh, interesting uh, with our podcasters again when they go to visit Lori Strode. uh, There's a great callback to the original movie. uh, And it's in the dialogue where they say he's being transferred. He's going to live out the rest of his days in this hellhole. And Lori Strode says, well, that's the idea. That's complete lift from dialogue that Dr. Loomis has when going to transfer Michael Myers and... The nurse says, what should I give him when we go up in front of the judge? And he says, Thorazine. She goes, he won't be able to stand. And that's the idea. So there was a complete direct lift. Um, then what, one of my favorites is the classroom scene. Yes. The classroom scene in the movie was brilliant because such a direct lift from the original movie, from where Laurie is in class, they're talking about fate. She looks outside. There's Michael Myers, but in this, did they movie, talk about Victor Frankel in the first one, or was it just Destiny and Fate? I it was Victor Frankenstein, I believe. They were. I forget who they were talking about. The fate of no, that was in H two O. They were talking about Frankenstein. Yeah, it could have been like because Laurie, who wasn't paying attention, gives the right answer about fate being the elements of the earth and and such. And Allison in this movie looks out, and it's her grandmother standing <laughs> and like you know just looking at her. Then we go. She gives her the money. However, did you know the voice? We never see the teacher in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know who the voice was? I do not. It's PJ Souls <laughs> from the original movie, which I think is awesome. So she does the voice of the teacher. Um, <clears throat> so then we've got the original Halloween. Um, okay, this is sort of a tough one. So the father and son while they're in the pickup truck. 
they turn on the radio, okay? The song that is playing on the radio is just the two of us. That is the song that John Carpenter and Jamie Lee Curtis made up for Lori Strode to sing to herself as she's walking down the streets of or the sidewalks of Haddonfield, and then the shape comes in the focus. She's she's just singing this made up song, just the two of us. They actually made it into a song for it yep. to be played on the radio. Um, Halloween four. Uh, you know, some of the references there. Uh, in Halloween 4, the beginning of the movie, Michael is being transferred from Smith Grove, uh, gets put on board to an ambulance. Things go horribly awry for the ambulance and the ambulance drivers and the attendants. Uh, in this movie, Michael's being transferred as well. Uh, things go horribly wrong for that bus and for the attendants. Uh, so there's a Halloween 4 reference. Um, so then we have... Um, Again, from Halloween uh, 4, another reference is the, um, the gas station, the gas station scene. There is a scene in Halloween 4 where Loomis goes to a gas station to fill up. Michael Myers has beaten him there to the punch when nobody, when he can't hail anybody to come down to take payment. He finds a dead mechanic, a dead attendant in a diner. There's that. Then also we have the bathroom scene. Um, the bathroom scene in which in our podcasters yeah. get killed. That comes right out of Halloween H2O, in which uh, in H2O, it is a mother and daughter who go to a rest stop bathroom. Uh, they get terrorized by Michael Myers, who uh, they they fare better than our two podcasters. Uh, they escape because Michael Myers is basically, uh, his truck has run out of gas and he steals their car. Um so it goes like all over. Oh, the opening. Oh, or actually, um, talking about when the, the shape. When the shape enters Haddonfield for the first time. This is Halloween two. Halloween and Halloween two. He, okay. In Halloween two, there is a man with a with a with a boombox. He's walking through Haddonfield Square. Uh, he bumps into Michael Myers. Uh, it is through. Um, the news is playing, and Michael Myers finds out that Laurie's at Haddonfield Memorial. In the movie, this movie, it's a little boy dressed as a pirate who has a boombox on his shoulder who bumps into Michael Myers. We look up. Michael Myers then turns, and he's going down to an alleyway. We see a woman with the hair curlers on. And as he's walking down, if you were listening closely, you will hear the poem that opens up the original Halloween, which is in Goblins on Halloween night, the thing, you know, trick or treat, and then Halloween opens. That is being said by children outside of the house. The woman is uh, a direct reference to Miss Elron from, from Halloween 2, in which after Michael gets up and escapes from Loomis, he goes to a house. Ms. Elrond is making a ham sandwich for her husband, who's watching Night of the Living Dead. It's switched it's to a news bulletin. She goes over to watch the news bulletin. Michael Myers comes in, steals the knife, a couple of drops of blood, goes off to another house. In this movie, he walks in, he gets a hammer. We see that this woman is making a ham sandwich. She leaves the knife down. He goes in, bludgeons her, drops the hammer, picks up the knife, goes to the next house. 
which in Halloween 2, it's a hapless teenager who is being warned by a friend over the phone what's going on. She's scared. Same thing happens here. Same results happen to that victim. Um, like I said, very... <laughs> there's just like a ton of all these references. Oh, we have... Um, there's a reference to Halloween 3. Um, two of the three masks that are featured in Halloween 3, which was a skull, pumpkin, witch. Uh, in this movie, we see uh, the pumpkin mask and the skull mask. And at the end of the movie, 2018, Halloween 3 was given credit for that. Um, we have... Oh, the Elrons actually get mentioned when Oscar, prior to his demise, and he's sitting in there with the motion-activated lights... Uh, he goes, Mr. Elrond, hey, sorry, you're not trespassing. <laughs> Complete reference there to Halloween 2. We already talked about Bob and the um, the, 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 the pinning. Uh, all, they even referenced the Rob Zombie movies. The Rob Zombie movies where in Halloween 2, uh, one of the workers to the, the, the rabbit in Red Lounge, which is from the first movie, he gets his head stomped on by Taylor Maine's Michael Myers. Um so then we get, in the end, as I said, there's just a ton at the end of the movie. Um, there's one really obscure reference that does have, has nothing to do with the movies. Uh, it takes place at Lori's compound when the cop car slowly comes in and crashes. And Ray comes outside and he opens the door. He decapitated one of the cops and used his head as a jack-o'-lantern. Uh, that actually is a reference to one of the Halloween comics that was written, uh, a really good one called Night Dance, and there is a panel of one of Michael Myers' victims who's decapitated, and he's carved it as a jack-o'-lantern lit from inside. And then, of course, we already talked about the end of the movie and how referency to the uh, to the original that that is, even using Dean Cundy's like use of, of darkness where Laurie comes out instead of the shape to attack Michael Myers. So... That's what I've noticed. Um, uh, if you've noticed any more, I could have missed some. Let me know. Absolutely. <laughs> so, As we said, that's lot. what the comment section is for. And we do want to hear from you. We encourage you to, especially as you see it, uh, you know, watch us and let us know what you thought. But that has been our coverage of Halloween 2018. Uh, I'm sure we will be here for the second one, not because of us. We, of course we're going to be here, but because there so. will be a second one. I, I believe think so. it. I think so. I think it's inevitable. Yeah. I, I think uh, it's something we can all look forward to, and I look forward to more horror movies from Blumhouse. Sure. Had, they've oh, had... you saw it last night. Can we talk trailers first? Did you get the trailer for Happy Death Day to you? I'm looking forward to that. So, Did you see the trailer? I did. I saw that trailer last night, too. It was really, really solid. So speaking of horror movies, you can look forward to Happy Death Day 2. To um, you. To you. <laughs> Thank you guys for joining us. We will also be covering First Man. And next week, uh, we're going to be doing The Hate You Give and maybe one other movie. So lots to look forward to. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of D Movies 1701, that's where you can interact with Dimitri. And you can't kill the boogeyman. <laughs> At Serafini TV is Marissa's Twitter and Instagram. Even though she's not here, you can always interact with her. I'm at Phil Svitek, and we are at the Popcorn Talk. That's the entire network. Thank you guys for joining us. See you next time. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. 
I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of its owners or principals.